Hello, and welcome to a special podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Senek, and I am joined today by two very special guests, Hoover Senior Fellow Richard Epstein, also a law professor at NYU and senior lecturer at the University of Chicago, and Yuval Levin, editor, national affairs, and Hertog Fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center for a discussion today of progressivism, classical liberalism, and conservatism in the age of Obama. Gentlemen, thank you for being here. Thanks very much. So Yuval, let me start with you. We are now three-quarters of the way through Barack Obama's administration. At this point, with more of the administration behind us than in front of us, how would you assess the intellectual state of progressivism today? Well, I think the intellectual state of progressivism is not strong, uh, but this administration has provided progressives with some real successes and achievements. Uh, especially in healthcare and in financial regulation, but uh, in some respects in regulation generally. I think what you'd have to say about the intellectual state of progressivism is that progressives are very far into the stage of their development where they take their own premises for granted and don't consider them to be ideological at all. And this sometimes is good for them politically, but it is not great for them intellectually. And I think progressivism now is quite incoherent. Uh, but it does keep marching on and uh, a- a- attacking some of uh, some of our society's foundations and roots, and uh, creating problems that we're going to have to spend a very long time trying to undo and and correct. Um, I think the Obama years have been very bad for the American political order and economic order and legal order, uh, increasingly legal order. And uh, you know those are all in a, in a sense achievements of progressivism. But I think it would be hard to say that progressivism now as an intellectual movement uh, is in strong shape. They're out of ideas, they're out of energy, and they don't understand themselves very well. Uh, and so for all that they have achieved, uh, they're also facing some very grave challenges. Richard, you heard you've all say their progressivism yeah. keeps marching on. One of the things that's been notable about this administration is the persistence of their approach. I mean they've had two brutal midterm elections, the first in 2010, another just last mm. year. Now granted you have the president getting reelected in between there, which is no small feat. But there's never been a sense that this administration was really chastened. There was never sort of a Clinton move to the center moment in there. So to what should we attribute their, their persistence in the face of so much popular resistance? Well, I think the president himself is a very strongly driven person and you know he would regard himself as consistent. I would regard him as much more dogmatic. But the premises that he has seem to be the kinds of things that just cannot be refuted by any evidence. So just to take one simple situation, he always argues that the way in which you help the middle class is to direct subsidies in their direction. And you know he's been able to do this with some fair degree of success in the last uh, six years or so. Then you start looking at median incomes and these things start to drop um, fairly considerably because what happens is the subsidies destroy capital formation and capital formation reduce opportunities. So you might think, well, he should do something about the labor market. He agrees with that. But again, he always does things which are in fact likely to impact the people he wants to help the most, the most, so that he hurts them the most. So higher minimum wage laws, very aggressive enforcements of the civil rights laws, pushing the Obamacare mandate with this very difficult cliff at either 30 or 40 uh, the effect of all of this is to make sure that capital holds back. There's a move towards automation and to outsourcing and so forth. 
And the president always thinks that these are sort of independent acts of evil by businesses who don't understand his wisdom, and he never treats them as unanticipated consequences of his own behavior. When it comes to the sorts of things that you've all talked about, the financial regulation, the healthcare regulation, I might add the lesser mess, but nonetheless, I think still serious complications associated with the renovations of the patent system. Uh, again, it's the president thinking that if he manages to take over these particular operations, they'll start to run better, uh, but he hasn't been able to do it. It's very difficult to run a healthcare system from the center, to put it mildly. Many of the so-called reforms of the Dodd-Frank Act have huge compliance costs, but haven't handled the fundamental problem of why it is that you put banks together at large size and stature. The patent system is more complicated than it had previously been. Uh, there is a constant sense on the part of administration that it's not a driver of it, of um, innovation, which I think is generally wrong. So, I mean, his consistent stuff means he's always pushing in the wrong direction on these things. And I think, in effect, that unless this point is made with some degree of public clarity, uh, the mixed emotions could always, or the mixed performances that we've seen could always be attributed, as the Democrats like to do it, to Republican intransigence. But on the economics and on the philosophy, there's nothing of the sort that supports that contention. These guys are in control of the ship, and they're responsible the fact that it seems to be sinking slowly. You've all, as, as you know, one of the fears that keeps Republicans up at night is the idea that the modern state is a one-way ratchet. The left gets there, increases in the size of government, and it, and it never goes back. So you can imagine a conservative saying to himself, maybe Barack Obama goes down as a failure. Maybe the country's turned against him by the time he goes home. But if he gets to keep Obamacare, if it stays around in roughly the same form in which it was constructed – he still wins. He gets that fundamental transformation of America that he talked about. Is that a fair assessment? Well, uh, that's certainly a fear that keeps me up, yes. But I think, it's, uh, <laughs> I, I think it's not necessarily going to happen that way. And I think the reason for that is that putting the fear that way in itself takes for granted one of the left's premises, which is that the, the political debate we have in our country is basically a yes or no argument about their agenda. And to the extent that Republicans succeeded is when they slow them down or stop them or maybe even turn them back a little bit. But when they're back in power, they're just going to turn right around and move forward again. I think that properly understood the political debate in our country is not a yes or no question about their agenda. It's a, a genuine disagreement about the role of government but also the character of our society and our political economy. And it's a disagreement between a progressive view that understands our country as uh, – as a kind of machine to be managed and a – call it conservative, call it classical liberal, call it libertarian. I think the, they do – I think we all do agree on that uh, view that says that uh, our society is not a thing to be run by the government. That the government has certain responsibilities to provide us with security, to enforce contracts, to give people the, 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 the room to thrive, uh, to protect certain kinds of preconditions, but that otherwise society needs to function – uh, in 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 a in a self-directed way, and that results in an in policy ideas and in political ideas and in economic arguments that are not, in fact, an answer to a yes or no question about the left's agenda, but that are a different way forward. I think part of the reason conservatives have had trouble in recent years is that we've tended to forget that a little bit, and we've had an argument about how we can pay less for the left's view of things. I think to the extent that conservatives recover from that 
it will be through making an argument to the country about what the role of government ought to be, what the character and nature of our society ought to be. And, you know, I think that in to 21st century America, that can be a pretty attractive argument because, in fact, we argue for a vision of American life that is in line with our increasingly dynamic but also increasingly fractured society, a society that's less consolidated, that's less centralized, that's less based on big institutions making decisions together. I think conservatives have an enormous amount to offer provided we don't imagine that all we have to offer is a break on the progress of progressivism. Yeah, um, I'm going to put it in a slightly different way, but I think it sort of emphasizes the same theme. Um, uh, you've all started to talk about we don't have one big centralized institution. The flip side of that is it's not that society in any form makes decisions. If you believe in decentralized government and decentralized power sources, as I do, what happens is you distribute power and much of it is held in private hands. And the whole genius of private innovation is it doesn't require the coordination of everybody to do something useful. It just requires a single individual or a given firm in order to make these initiatives. One of the things that's ironic about the progressive view of the world is they never want to give credit for great individuals for the things that they've achieved. They don't like people like Henry Ford or Thomas Edison. They don't like people like Steve Jobs or Bill Gates to some extent. Uh, they want everything to sort of come out of this sort of homogenized government apparatus where in fact it's the individuals who are risk takers and, and, and visionaries who make the great changes from which the rest of us prosper. And I I think a Republican administration that came in and said these are the people whom we ought to treasure rather than the ones we ought to think and to vilify, uh, I think would be an extremely useful situation. The top 1% does many things in this world, including account for most of the innovation and creativity from which the rest of us benefit. Uh, the thought that somehow or other they never pay their fair share uh, to the rest of us seems to me to be almost ludicrous under the assertion. First of all, the political system it makes sure that they're relatively overtaxed, which means that to some extent they're underproduced. But in addition to that, um, you have to remember the enormous amount of gains that other people get when they can buy these wonderful inventions for a price which is far, far below the value and the utility that they get from the things in question. And so if you push a growth agenda and an opportunity agenda and keep law as a way of keeping order, organizing people, stopping monopolies from growing in one form or another, taxing at low but sensible rates, I think in effect what you can do is to persuade people that uh, in the long run and indeed even in the short run, that is going to do far better than the current uh, Obama strategy, which is first you regulate the hell out of labor markets and then you subsidize labor markets assuming that somehow or other these two things will counteract. The truth about the matter is the regulations hurt and subsidies generally always reduce social welfare because you, the amount that you tax means that you misallocate the resources so you lose on both ends of that deal. And if you stop it all, you reduce administrative costs and increase overall social production, which should be, I think, an attractive public campaign. Let me, let me reinforce one piece of that. I, I, I would say that the the power of non-centralized systems to solve problems is not only evident in the, the sort of great men who invent great things. So I think that is extremely important and something that we should never take for granted. It's also evident in the way that institutions function and in the yep. way that communities function and how societies solve problems not by assigning the solution to a centralized group of, uh, of, of technocratic experts uh, but by letting life happen. Uh, solutions happen from the bottom up. One of the one of the assertions that progressivism has made since the moment of its birth is that the growing complexity of our society and of our economy <laughs> means that that kind of thing can't work anymore. That because society is so complex, 
there needs to be more power consolidated at the center so that people can manage uh, these great uh, movements of, of people and money and resources. And I think that that's exactly backwards, that one of the great insights uh, that, again, conservatives and libertarians and, uh, and classical liberals have always had in common is that growing complexity is an increasingly powerful argument for decentralization. Simple rules fact, for a complex world, my friend. Exactly. The only way to overcome the knowledge problems that are getting more and more daunting, not less and less, uh, is to allow them to be resolved by trial and error, experimentation that is followed by evaluation and is followed by evolution, by letting failures go away and keeping only successes. The way we run the government doesn't allow any of that to happen. There's no experimentation, there's no evaluation, and there's certainly no evolution. And one of the strongest arguments for limited government, in my view, is that we have better ways of solving problems uh, that, that work by letting society function. And that means by letting institutions as well as individuals try. Uh, that's what you do when you don't have all the answers. And I think ultimately the left and the right disagree about whether we have all the answers. But the not we don't. Yeah, yeah, the knowledge problem, I think, which you've all stressed, is, is one of the most acute and difficult things that we always have to deal with. And again, on this point, the Hayekian insight is correct. If you've got lots of people with distributed knowledge, uh, their ability to form short-term, transient, long-term alliances on terms and conditions that they see fit is likely to get that knowledge into usable and organized form more rapidly than anything else. And you can form incredibly complicated networks through voluntary types of arrangements so long as there are no impediments put into to their way. And one of the things that you can see this is if you look, for example, at the way distribution systems work and supply chains are organized today, these are incredibly complicated types of machines with extremely high levels of reliability, all sorts of social and economic ways in which to enforce them, where actually the legal enforcement of contracts is too little, too slow, and too late, and so that these business arrangements tend to thrive by other kinds of mechanisms. And I think that's the kind of thing that we have to really stress. And what happens is there's such an enormous emphasis upon market failures and such a slight discussion of government failures, the chief one of which is that a dinosaur takes a long time so that a sensation which hits it on the leg is going to reach it in the mind. And by the time the information is gathered by the government, the entire problem has moved on. Drug regulation is a perfect example of all of this. All of the techniques now available for figuring out personalized medicine have to go through an FDA, which is basically calibrated on 1960s principles. Uh, government institutions move slowly, technology moves rapidly, and it turns out that the government becomes a barrier to the creation on the other side. And once we sort of understand that, we can get more for less by breaking down those particular barriers, concentrating on monopoly and fraud, and not worrying about our ability to micromanage and to protect, quote-unquote, the public from things that sensible and desirable people are trying to create, either geniuses on the one hand or ordinary, ordinary individuals making marginal and incremental changes changes on the other. Last question that I'll ask on the progressive side, and then I want to focus a bit more on the right. You've all put Barack Obama into context vis-a-vis -vis some of the other major progressive presidents of the last century. How would you compare or contrast his legacy with those of people like Woodrow Wilson or FDR or LBJ? Ah. Well, Do you want to take I it think, first? Go. Uh, sure. I guess so. I, I, I guess I would say that um, – Obama is, in a sense, our most thoroughgoing progressive president. Uh, Wilson might compare, but uh, in some respects, I, I would I would put Obama even ahead of Wilson. 
certainly he's more ideologically progressive than uh, than LBJ was and than FDR. Um, that doesn't mean he's been more successful than they've been because I think the public is in a different place. The American public, especially uh, in in the Roosevelt years, uh, was much more open to these ways of thinking, to the possibility that consolidated government could work because they hadn't yet seen it fail uh, than they are now. So he certainly hasn't been successful in that way. But I think that he is an ideologue um, and th- that he really operates with a worldview that clarifies the differences between left and right in some pretty powerful ways um, and that even democratic presidents have not tended to be quite as ideological as, uh, as this president. Look, I mean, when you take somebody like Wilson, he starts off a base in which the uh, national government is running, you know, one or two percent of the economy. You add in things like the Federal Trade Commission. You introduce um, a stiffening of the antitrust laws under the Clayton Act. You introduce for the first time subsidies uh, for foreign exports through the Webb Pomerine Act, which essentially allows for monopolies in the export trade, which is terrible. These things are some not so good, not so bad, but they're coming off a small base. By the time time you get to Roosevelt, there's a larger base. And the stuff that he did, for the most part, probably failed in terms of its ability to reverse the Depression. Uh, it took the war to get us out of it. And he expanded things even further, but still relatively small compared to what you have today. What Obama is doing is he's taking policies which have never worked, putting it on a larger base, and making even more dramatic shifts than had ever been made before. And your third generation of progressivism has a lot more difficulties and a lot less low-hanging fruit available to it. So you'd expect to see the kinds of stagnation that you take place. You know, just take one number. Unemployment now seems at last to be moving down, but it has nothing to do with the Obama reforms of the first five years in office. It has to do with the fact that we finally got rid of 99 weeks worth of um, unemployment insurance and the immoral hazard that it created. So that's just one illustration how doing less through the center does more. All the earlier stuff, what happens is the only way we reduced the unemployment rate was to simply drive people out of the workforce to begin with. Now they're coming back. The president is the president during this occurrence, but it's nothing that he did which drove this situation. He does not understand that as the government gets bigger and bigger, each additional unit of government aggression, government control, government centralization takes a larger and larger fraction of the economy out of the private sector, and that's going to really tip the balance for the worse. So that's the thing that the Republicans have to fight when as and if they run their next campaign in a sensible fashion. Well, that, that's what I, I want. I would add one thing to that. I, I, I think that there's, there are changes happening in American life in the 21st century that reinforce a lot of the trends that Richard mentions and that I think make the kind of old-fashioned or nostalgic progressivism that Obama is advancing even a worse fit um, and that both exacerbate the problems the left is facing and might be a, a, a good transition for us to think about the right. I in the mid-20th century, coming out of the Second World War, the United States really was consolidating in a way it never had before and was a nation that in some important respects uh, was run by large institutions, by an increasingly large government, by big business, by big labor, by big academic institutions. Uh, there were a few large media entities and they all kind of worked together to manage the country. You could plausibly think about success in America as navigating these large institutions successfully. Now, whether that was ever the right way to think about success, I think it wasn't. But that's all changing except government. 
the idea that these large institutions are the way America works now is just as a matter of fact not true. Uh, and so our economy is, is deconsolidating. Uh, you certainly see it in the media. I mean, we're having this conversation, and it's not uh, it, it, it's it's not in a big network environment. Uh, you see it in the academy. You see it in in the labor market. We're seeing a mass decentralization of American life in in the 21st century, and neither of our political parties has responded to this at all. They are both, I think, living nostalgically. One of them misses the early 80s, and the other misses the mid 60s. But neither of them is particularly looking at the 21st century, and I think the right in particular would find a lot of opportunities. Uh, there, are also, there are also risks and dangers and problems to think about, uh, and policymaking often is problem-solving. But I think that at this point our politics is as frustrating as it so often is because neither of the major parties is actually confronting the realities of 21st century American life. And so they're not speaking to the problems people face. They're not speaking to the opportunities that people are, are aware of. Uh, and they're having an argument that's uh, just a kind of playing out of an old script, finishing other people's sentences from, from 30 years ago and 60 years ago. And it doesn't make a lot of sense. Look, the economy has gone the way of Life magazine. Uh, that is, if you go back to that period, you used to have these all-purpose organizations which kind of gave everybody a little bit of what they wanted but nobody what they really wanted. And progress has come by, by firms both large and small peeling off some particular fraction of that undifferentiated mass and giving them in concentrated dosages the things that they want. And that trend will continue indefinitely. Instead of having long-term permanent alliances where you can have a government create a monopoly, then tax the monopoly, then tell the monopoly it had to share it with organized labor and so forth, these shifting alliances will not have these super competitive returns. There's going to be constant erosion. And what we ought to do is, I think at this point, is to take a leaf from Robert Nozick now, the one part of Anarchy Utopian State that I've always liked the best was his attack on pattern principles. He said if you get the basic organizations right and run voluntary transactions rapidly and cheaply and you see a pattern that you did not predict, that's to the better. It's not to the worse. And the notion that somehow or other there's a fair distribution of goods and services across given technologies, given parties, given peoples, and given groups, that always gets you into trouble because in the effort to bring yourself back to this imaginary perfect state, what you do is you destroy the productive processes that start to get you there. So I disagree a little bit with you, Val. I think that there's many a place for small firms, but some of these small firms will become mighty oaks. And, you know, the great successes of the recent years have not been in traditional regulated industries. It's in companies like Google and eBay and Apple, which essentially have grown up outside of the regulatory framework and then hopefully will not be consumed by it. And what we want to do is to make sure that we plant a lot of seeds and then having a diverse strategy. Some will grow mightily, some will fail, and some of them will kind of move along at an intermediate level. And so long as we're confident that the process on entry and exit, no subsidies for failed companies, for example, is working well, uh, we could live with the results. And what this tells you on energy, for example, you don't want to start subsidizing solar. You don't want to ban it either, but you want it to pay its way and so on down the line. Yuval, what would a political party that's responsive to the kind of 21st century developments you're talking about look like? What are some of the sort of specific policy proposals that come along with the recognition of some of these social and, and cultural changes? Well, so political parties have to start from current reality uh, and that's always very frustrating to those of us who uh, would like to see 
reality be just a little different. But that's where you have to begin. And you have to have an end in mind and you have to think about how to get there step by step. I think that if we, uh, if we think about how to solve problems in an increasingly decentralized society, and I think this is how to solve problems in any society, but it's especially and increasingly evident uh, in 21st century America – if solving problems involves a basically a kind of three-step process of experimentation with different approaches, of evaluation of what's working and what's not, and of evolution, which just means dumping failure and keeping success, uh, you can point to just about every realm of public policy and say the way our government is working now doesn't follow this, uh, this way of solving problems at all. Regulation doesn't allow for experimentation. Uh, Policy is not evaluated by the people who are served by it, and nothing ever goes away, success or failure. We vote for Head Start every year, though we've known for 30 years, known that it doesn't work. Um, if you begin to think that way and look at today's public policy arenas, you can, you can move one by one and say what your policy agenda should look like. So in education, we don't allow people any choice, we don't allow them to evaluate, and we don't allow failures to go away. That argues for school choice and for more than that. It argues for educational choice, for unbundling uh, the options that confront uh, families and letting them think through what kind of uh, education works for them. There's still a significant public investment in education. It's not that it goes away, but it would be used in this kind of problem-solving way rather than used to uh, enforce solutions from the center. If you think about healthcare, we've just gone massively in the wrong direction in the last few years if you think about about how to solve problems in the way I've just described, right? Because we've moved to a system that has the government define the insurance product and then compels insurers to sell it and compels consumers to buy it. And on top of that, they even insist on calling this a market just to insult us. And so <laughs> I, 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 I think the, this, the direction there is also pretty clear. You want to allow a lot more experimentation in 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 business model design, in insurance product design, in provision of care. You want to empower people to choose among these options and you want to allow the successes to survive and the failures to die out. Uh, that argues, again, for a different role for government. Uh, if we start from the immense role we have now, we don't go to zero right away, but we go to a different role where the government empowers consumer choices and the market is directed to giving consumers what they want rather than saying, uh, you know, these MIT health economists know what consumers should want. And so we need to design a system that gives it to them whether they like it or not. Uh, you can go through area by area. I think if you look at, uh, at higher education policy, for example, where the government has thoroughly screwed things up, created a system that inflates costs and keeps out competitors. Again, allow competitors in, which means change accreditation let different kinds of models uh, compete, unbundle the four-year degree, uh, let families make real choices, and see what happens. I think to start with, an agenda that goes issue by issue and looks like that uh, would give Republicans a lot to work with, and they could offer the public some real relief from real problems that people confront that Republicans in some ways have, of course, tried these things, and they've talked about school choice, and there is something like a conservative approach to health care and, and even higher education increasingly. But it's never put in, this, it's never put in these terms for the public. It's, it's never put in terms that say there are better ways to solve problems than the ones that our government follows now, and that logic leads to X, Y, and Z on these issues. 
I think Republicans could go a long way toward improving their political standing if they spoke to the public in those terms, which has not tended to be uh, what they've done. Now, um, I'm going to be a little bit more specific about some of the various kinds of choices. If you start with education, uh, one of the things that the president is very keen on is trying to increase the level of subsidies that are going to be given to community colleges either directly or in the form of tuition-free payments to people or educations to people who maintain a 2.5 or C-plus average. Um, there's no evidence whatsoever that community colleges actually do systematically a good job relative to the subsidies that they receive. And yet at the same time that the the president is pushing for these huge subsidies, what he's doing in effect is trying to make it much more difficult for competitors in the private sector, in the poor profit sector, to be able to supply either degrees or certificates which are much more calibrated to market needs because they move much more quickly. Now, why is he doing this? Well, in part, he just likes government to be the controller of everything because he thinks he knows well. In part, because he knows that the institutions that he supports tend to be heavily unionized and unions turn out to be one of his major political supporters. Blocks, uh, but the way in which the Department of Education, particularly after you get through K through 12 and you start in the graduate level in the part-time market, has systematically and ruthlessly used its powers to shut down these kinds of operations up and down across the board. And there's absolutely no reason whatsoever why that should be. If there's fraud in individual cases, of course you ought to allow suits and maybe even government disaccreditation. But the kind of anticipatory stuff, we think you're going to do something wrong so we won't permit you to do anything at all is a wild overkill. If you start looking at the healthcare markets, it's a similar situation. One of the things I like to talk about is that the definition of minimum essential benefits that is stated in the various Obamacare statutes and regulations often conclude services that have never been supplied to any group of consumers in any competitive market at any time. And so if you want to kind of have a vivid influence as to what the difference is between consumer preferences and government mandates, that's a good place to start. And so you start having things like what they call habilitative services. And I'm not saying that people who are healthy don't need health care. Obviously, they do. But the thought that you want to run this through the same system that you're going to treat serious diseases upon, it seems to me to be a complete non sequitur. And pricing these things is extremely complicated. And it basically makes it much more difficult for people to get on plans when it turns out they want. And at the same time, the kind of uh, informal clinics, the drive-by clinics, the places in drugstores and Walmarts and Walgreens or whatever are much better at trying to do this kinds of stuff. And what we have to do is not to subsidize them, but just to get out of the way of the opposition. The moment you subsidize a competitor to a private institution, you make it that much harder for the private institution to exist or to flourish, and that's what the administration is doing. So again, it's the theme of open entry, open exit. You can quit when you want. You don't have to stay in business. And that the successes are survived by the ability to satisfy their customers, not by the ability to satisfy a bureaucrat who often has very much the wrong production function. So as we get towards the end here, it would be a shame having the two of you here. Yuval, you a very prominent conservative. Richard, you a very prominent libertarian. One of the discussions that keeps coming up on the right over the last couple of years <laughs> is the extent to which conservatives should have a strong libertarian influence on the policy side going forward. Um, Yuval, why don't you start there for us? To, to what extent do you think the, those two coalitions can work together? Is, is there still a realistic possibility of an effective fusionism? I certainly think so, yes. Um, and I would say that the 
what we've been talking about up to now, which is the character of modern progressivism and its consequences, is certainly a lot of the reason for that. Uh, conservatives and libertarians have a kind of uh, common adversary and have had for a long time. But I think it's not the only reason. Conservatives and libertarians have a lot of other things in common. Um, I think they have a kind of epistemology in common, a, a humble sense of what human beings can know and do in the world, which some conservatives and libertarians arrive at from different angles, from different sources, but ultimately its implications for politics and policy are similar. Um, I think they also have a similar set of attitudes about power uh, and about government. Not always and not fully, but um, certainly to the extent that should enable them to work together by giving them a lot of common interests and common uh, goals and common ends. There are some assumptions where they differ, uh, obviously, and you see those. They come up all the time. But the nature of political coalitions is, it seems to me, that when you have quite that much in common and a common adversary in our everyday politics, um, this is a pretty strong coalition. Now, Look, Richard, I, Richard yeah, my, the, okay. the, a, well, the, the, the label that I used for you a moment ago was libertarian. You prefer the label classical liberal, and I know that you think that a lot of people who are publicly held up – as faces of libertarianism right now reflect something that's intellectually distinct from what you practice. So explain the distinction there. Well, uh, look, there's, it's a distinction on both domestic and foreign affairs. On the domestic side, a traditional libertarian believes that the sole function of government is to figure out ways to prevent and to minimize the use of force and fraud. And I think there is nobody who is against that libertarian view by saying, no, you're really wrong about aggression. You're really wrong about deception. These things are just wonderful. Uh, the question is how much beyond that do you prepare to go? And at this point, the libertarian and the classical liberal differ in, in several ways. One, libertarians tend to be very suspicious of any tax regime whatsoever. And they try to figure out why it is that you ought not to have them. They move in some cases towards an anarcho tradition. A classical liberal says you've got to have taxes in order to fund public goods. The question is how you develop a system of broad, flat taxes which minimize the distortions on the economy. And the hope is that you put the taxes in such a fashion that by supplying collective goods that markets can't provide, people always get back from taxes more taxes more than they pay in so that if you could keep the system in play, taxes actually boost productivity. They're not instruments for massive wealth transfer, which is what it is that the American left wants to do. Uh, the classical liberal also thinks that private monopolies can be a, sort of a dangerous situation and takes a harder look on cartels, for example, than do the uh, libertarians. And I think on those issues, uh, we're talking about the right thing. And the last point is a classical liberal kind of understands you're dealing with network industries and so forth. Oftentimes, the use of an eminent domain power is going to be required, even though it's very difficult to know what just compensation is and how it works. And, of course, this is tied in with the recent measles situation where libertarians tend to be very suspicious of government action, and most classical liberals believe that um, disease prevention from contagion is a perfectly legitimate government function. So those are things that they're going to have to work out. And I think you know people like Rand Paul, who often take stock libertarian positions missed the public sentiment on these issues, um, for example, with his recent gaffes with respect to vaccines. On the foreign side, the difficulty is 
whether you're a libertarian or a classical liberal, you have to understand that it's not just the use of force that matters. It's the threat of force that matters. And it's not just force against you that matters. It's force against others, innocent parties, sometimes your allies and sometimes not that matter as well. And that trying to figure out a coherent government response to that requires that you be much more energetic in your use of force overseas. Um, And I think one of the things that's wrong about the Obama brand of progressivism is that it tends to lead to quiescence in foreign affairs, which leads to the multiplication of adverse entities who take over and undo the good that have been done under previous administration. And unless the libertarian movement can sort of isolate itself from its pacifist wing, it's going to be harder, I think, for it to make an alliance with traditional conservatives that see a strong American government and a fairly assertive foreign policy um, and the willingness to use military force as essentials to a free society. I think that tension could really slow things down. And I'm in this very strange position. I'm not a conservative when it comes to religious values and so forth, but I do believe, in effect, in a strong foreign policy and a relatively small domestic government. But that's not the same thing as saying that I believe in no government at all. Okay, two quick questions here as we come to the end of our time. You've all start with you, although I'd like both of you to answer each of these. First, how will this era in American history be remembered when we're looking back 50 years from now at the Obama years? What will we be saying about this period in American history? Well, I think that if we think of this period as, say, the first 15 years of the 21st century, I think we would have to say that it was a time of great disorientation and missed opportunities. Um, Our economy has been extraordinarily weak in this period, um, and our policymakers have spent most of their time just waiting for it to come back rather than thinking about how they're standing in the way of that. Um, and so, you know, it seems to me that it's a time when our politics is, as I suggested before, kind of overcome by nostalgia and a little disoriented and, and not interacting well with the realities of, of 21st century life. You know, I, I think that, uh, that's been the case under both, uh, President Bush and President Obama. And I don't think that it's exactly a function of one party or another or one ideology or another. Uh, it has been complicated for us to get used to the the realities of life in the 21st century. But I think things have gotten significantly worse under President Obama for a lot of the reasons that we've talked about because progressivism is uniquely poorly suited uh, to confronting these challenges. Look, I think it will be regarded, at least the Obama years, as a situation of disappointment and outcomes. One thinks back to the president in the evening that he won his election in 2008 and the speech that he gave in Grand Park. And it's odd to say that the high point of a presidential administration took place two months and then some before the president actually took office. But the idea that he would transform the world, roll back global warming and eliminate poverty and everything else at this grand level, I think was in fact a complete mistake. What he lacks is any relationship of means to ends. Unanticipated consequences just don't enter into his evaluation framework. He doesn't understand trade works, trade trade-offs. And so you see this steady kind of decline. The weakness in foreign affairs, which is much more Obama than it was George Bush on this particular score, I think will also signal a decline of American influence. And this leads 
leads people like myself to get very nervous because every time you now look around, somebody is having to arm themselves. It's going to be the Christians in Iraq. It's going to be the Japanese and so forth. It's going to be the coalition in Africa to deal with Boko Haram and so on. And a lot of that is taking place because people no longer count upon America as an ally that they can trust in times of trouble. And uh, when you decide that you're going to lead from behind, it turns out you don't lead at all. So I see the period as one of economic stagnation and foreign policy retreat and disarray. Not a pretty legacy. So final question. I'm going to give you both an opportunity to add a silver lining to everything that we just went through. <laughs> how, how optimistic are you about America going forward? How much capacity do we have to bounce back from precisely the kind of issues that you've been describing over the course of the last 15 years? Yuval? I'm optimistic about America. I, I would say, first of all, uh, because the world grades on a curve and there's no one you'd rather be than America, uh, we have all kinds of problems, but every one of them uh, exists in a in a worse and more challenging way uh, in, in, in the rest of the developed world. And, of course, the developing world has its own challenges. I think America is very well geared uh, to continue to be uh, a, a, a global leader in both freedom and growth. Um, and to still be a model to the world in how you live free. And I would say I, – I, I would add a little wrinkle to our conversation about conservatives and, and libertarians. Uh, I think one difference that didn't get enough shrift is that conservatives ultimately think that society uh, isn't all about politics or even about law or even about economics. But that ultimately it is uh, – society is a thing that arises out of families and out of communities um, hmm. and that – can be seen in its uh, strongest form and most uh, thriving form in civil society and that the role of government is to make room for that and to make that safe. Uh, and, and ultimately on that front, I think American society has a lot to draw on, a lot to work with. Um, and you know, in every generation, you have an opportunity for renewal. Uh, it won't be easy. We've got uh, a lot of ground to make up. But it can be done, and I think if anybody can do it, America can do it, and I'm optimistic. Look, one of the things about uh, classical liberalism as opposed to libertarianism is it stresses these intermediate voluntary institutions, imperfect obligations, charitable uh, foundations, and similar kinds of good works by both religious and non-religious institutions. And I think Yuval is exactly right. If you have that kind of buffer between the individual and the state, it makes for greater social stability on the one hand and a stronger sense of community and belonging. When people belong to groups of 100 or 1,000, they have a different feeling than being an individual in the state with 315 million people. As far as the long-term progression, I think actually what makes it so difficult is the tipping point problem. Uh, to give you a, a, a routine illustration of this, when you have a union election, often they're hawks and doves and the thing goes 52-48 one way or the other. And until you know the outcome of the election, which often turns on a very thin majority, you have no idea whether it's going to be a successful union or a disruptive union. And that's what presidential elections are like today. They're all or nothing on one person for four years. If somebody like Hillary Clinton, whom I think is not capable of leading the kind of regeneration that either Yuval or I want, wins because she's the most familiar person, uh, we will have a rendition of Christmas past. She's old. She's brittle. Uh, she doesn't have a new idea on any of this stuff. She prides herself on thoroughness, but that's not enough to get it through. If you get some fresh face from either the Democratic 
Democratic or the Republican Party, things could go very, very much better. And so that's what makes it so hard. If you think, in effect, that a lot is going to turn on one discrete event of this particular sort, and you think that there's a real high side from one fork in the road and a low side from the other fork in the road, uh, it turns out that the one thing you're not going to see is a middle outcome. It's either going to be very, very good or it's going to be hard. And until I can get a better sense on this next election, I don't know what to expect coming out of it. At this particular point, I think it's probably more likely that a Republican will win than a Democrat. I think the brittleness of Hillary Clinton will show itself either before she gets nominated and she may withdraw or afterwards. And the Republicans certainly have a stronger bench of younger candidates who I think could make a successful public appeal. Uh, So let's hope that they win this one because for all my differences with Republicans on a bunch of issues, there's no question I'm much more closer to them intellectually than I am to Democrats who have completely alienated me on both domestic and foreign affairs. All right. My guests have been Richard Epstein, senior fellow at the Hoover Institution as well as professor of law at NYU and senior lecturer at the University of Chicago and Yuval Levin, editor of National Affairs and Hertog Fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. Gentlemen, thanks for being with us. Pleasure. Thank, thank you. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.